Hey there, welcome back to Point of Sale, the retail supply chain show where we break down great retailers, the supply chains that move them, and the data they use to make decisions. I'm your host, Andrew Cox, Senior Retail Analyst here at FreightWaves, and I've been looking forward to the discussion I will have today for quite some time. Not because we've had it scheduled for a long time, but because I've been following this guy for quite some time, and he is one of the most thoughtful and well-researched analysts on the street. That is Simeon Siegel. He is a managing director and senior analyst of retail and e-commerce at BMO Capital Markets. And before I bring him on, I would like to take a moment to thank my sponsor. ArcBest is more than logistics. Whatever you do, whatever you ship, ArcBest makes it easier for you to do business. ArcBest combines reliable capacity, innovative technology, and trusted relationships to take the complexity out of your supply chain and keep your shipments moving. That's what makes ArcBest more than logistics. Simeon, you are new to the FreightWaves TV audience, so welcome, and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you. That was way too flattering uh, of an intro, but good to be here, Andrew. I know we, we've we been talking about setting this up, so uh, glad to join. Looking forward to the conversation. Uh, as you said, I, I cover retail and e-commerce from uh, the public equity side at Emo Capital Markets. It's a fantastically fun group to cover, as you all know, considering it's a perpetually changing group. So keeps you on your toes, always talking to interesting people. And I think what has been fascinating, I'm sure we'll get into this, is that the pandemic, <clears throat> we actually did did something that we believed, we, we, my team and I published a report called, did the pandemic, did COVID actually save retail? And I think that the beauty of what has changed has allowed people to rethink how they operate and has given everyone a pause. And I think, well, I'm sure we'll get there. It's just a very exciting time from that perspective, recognizing obviously the uh, the the um, kind of all the, all the negative implications that have come as well. So we've been looking for silver linings, and I think they are there to be found. I think I know where one of those is going to come from when it when it comes to uh, making less, selling less, earning more. Uh, I think that's been a theme of uh, of retail across the last couple months. But I do wanted to uh, take a moment to touch on. I saw you cut your teeth the first couple of years at Goldman. What do you make of the, uh, the the crazy news coming out from the Goldman? You know, analysts working so hard. Oh, wow. Didn't know we were going there. Um, I had to, man. You spent two years, <laughs> your first two years out of, out of school, you were there. So you, you've been in their shoes. What do you make of it? Listen, I'll say it this way. Uh, we hear you, the, the pandemic, you've, and anyone who's not commuting and working from home has saved commuting hours. And we keep hearing you're spending more and more time here. So I don't think you have to be a junior analyst to feel that pressure. I, I asked my family, I think I've been uh, logging off at 12, logging back on at six for the last several months. So um, listen, I, I I'll, I'll leave it there. Um, I'll, I'll, I know when to go off record, but uh, I think that yeah, I'll leave it there. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to. Uh, I didn't mean to. I like it. Keeping me on my toes. Uh, and also, one more, just in the top of the headline news: uh, Suez Canal getting blocked by the the, the major shipping uh, container. What do you What do you make of that? Uh, I love when I can answer that something is way above my knowledge grade, and that is one of them. So. When it comes when it comes to politics, when it comes to thinking through those implications, listen, we can talk about logistics and we can talk about what it's going to cost as people have to move things to, in a different venue. But uh, beyond that, I know when things are above my scope and we are there. 
All right. Well, let's talk about moving things uh, by different routes. We've got, let's just talk about the port congestion in general, because we're going to cover some trends in uh, retail that are redefining supply chains throughout this discussion. And one of the short-term trends that is momentarily or temporarily uh, redefining supply chains is the port congestion, especially on the West Coast in LA and the Port of Long Beach. How are retailers feeling right now and what should retailers be doing to try to avoid the port congestion if it's avoidable at all? Yeah, so I think what we saw over the last nine, 12 months that everyone knows, but people try to ignore is the fact that the back of house is just as important as the front of house. And, and I like to talk about how the most important thing in retail for a brand or a retailer is to balance exclusivity and distribution. So in other words, figuring out how large to be um, versus how much pricing power, let's call it to have. But what we also finding out is the equation that you need to balance is how fast to get stuff into your stores versus how much it's going to cost to do that. So what we found a huge part of this inventory lack, right, this paucity of inventory that we saw in Q4 was due to the fact that A, all the factories shut down, B, retailers stopped placing orders, but then C, by the time we finally got things moving on and getting things back in process, you couldn't actually move any of that product. So that was this really interesting, I think, light bulb that everyone had to acknowledge, right? It was that evil that everyone knows. It's kind of like moving into a house and you'd much rather spend money to put in a pool than you would to spend in, put in an HVAC because you're not going to get anything, but you need it. What we found out was that HVAC, you don't have the HVAC, you don't have air conditioning. So at the end of the day, retailers are grappling with this and it compounded at the wrong time given the holiday you had the rush. I, I think that everyone is trying to figure out the workarounds. And if you have high enough price point that you can afford to shift to air, if you have a basic enough product that you know it's not going to go stale, right? Like everyone has a different equation to figure out, but everyone is dealing with the fact that it is much harder to get product than it would have been last year. So I was talking to Rick Helfenbein. He's a former uh, president and uh, CEO, the head of the American Apparel and Footwear Association the other day. And he was saying that you know, these are, um, it's timely for this shipping delays to occur right now because he thinks it's, it makes for a good excuse that it's actually just poor planning on the behalf of retailers because when they were making these purchases, they were making them before the, the last two stimulus checks and um, before the, the vaccine news has really ramped up. Uh, what do you, what do you make of that? Do you agree? I think there's always going to be excuses when it comes to corporate America, the same way there's always going to be excuses when it comes to people's personal lives. Um, I think the question is how you take the excuse and how you move on from the excuse. Weather has generally been a word that retail managers will bring up if they need to, and they'll try to avoid if they don't. Because at the end of the day, yeah, there's intern, internal pros and cons, and then there's externalities you have to grapple with. Um, listen, there's no question 2020 was the, was the externality. So to say that retailers are at fault for not planning correctly, I don't know how fair of an assessment that is. Uh, I, I think it's so interesting that a year ago, almost, right, let's, let's call it 11, 10 months ago. So once we were in the pandemic, but not fully through the notion, everyone immediately started thinking, you're saying the word pandemic, they're thinking 2008. And when we think 2008, we think inventory stockpiles that then last for 10 years worth of the inventory promotional death spirals, right? And once you start, it doesn't stop. And instead was the reverse. It was that the fact that store closures sort of saved retail from itself and it got big companies to stop placing orders, which then shut down the whole process. So I don't think it would have been prudent for these retailers in April 
to plan for holiday as if they would have planned for holiday in 2019. And I think that the reality is leaving sales on the table is exactly what allowed retailers to grab profit. And I think that this was the first holiday in a long time where it wasn't chaotic. It was the first time in a long time where retailers were able to take back that pricing power. Part of that, as they look at that and explain why their revenues were light, even as their profits were heavy, is going to be thrown on different forms of inventory stoppages, whether it's the ports, whether it's the factories, whatever it's going to be, this idea that there isn't product in the stores, which by the way, is what's allowing for the prices to go up. It, it's good, right? It's, it's an easy, like you said, it's an easy excuse for the retailer to say, I can get, I can, I can eat, have my cake and eat it too, because it wasn't my fault. And because I get the profits, regardless of what it was, the question is going to be now that that's behind us. Now that you don't have this holiday reason to shop, what do people do now, right? And where what happens with the inventory? And I think that's going to be what's so interesting. Well, let's talk about it because I think in apparel in particular, it's uh, a very difficult situation that apparel retailers are having to deal with. They have a lot of last year's spring stock that may have gone unsold. And so the inventories were really high to begin the year, but now they're having difficulties getting inventory in uh, for the spring and summer seasons. How do you think they approach uh, the, the spring and summer and into this back half of the year when it comes to inventory ordering, when they know that, as you said, the prudence that they uh, went, that they used in the back half of the year really saved their years. How do you think they approach when there's market share gains available to them? We've seen a lot of retail closures over the last couple of years. What do they do? Yeah, it's, it's a great question because because we're in this weird scenario, increasingly less, but but for now, where you and I as an outsider knows just as much, we have just as much of an ability to predict a retailer's business from the inside because there's just such level of uncertainty and trying to figure out what that arc of recovery is going to be back to 2019. So from a sales perspective, so the one question I've been asking every single company for the last three, four, five months has been, what are your inventory receipts? What are your plans, right? The one thing you have under control is how much you buy. And so most don't give that answer, by the way. So, so at the end of the day, I think the, the question is figuring out that you go back and forth of, do you want to afford, or can you afford to leave sales on the table, which has been so far from the realm of possibility for the last 10 years? Right? That has not been a question. The question has not been, are we leaving full price sales on the table? It's how do we how do we grab more and try to get volume? So I think the way most companies are going to do it, I think you're going to have certain companies, there's going to be a divergence. And I think this is where we're going to find out who the winners and who the losers are. And when I say winners and losers, I mean, who are the ones that are thoughtful and who took the lessons from, 2000, from 2020 and who are the ones that are going to go back? So if 2020 gave pricing power, the question is who's going to hold the promotional line versus who's going to cross it? And I think that a really interesting way to think about it is if you look at the merch margin, you look at the merch mar merchandise margin, the product margin, the profit, whatever we want to, whatever, whatever verbiage we want to use. But if you look at who controlled their margins in, in holiday 2020 versus who didn't, because if you couldn't control them in 2020, what are you going to do in 2021? So I think that to your point about the inventory in spring, listen, everyone's itching to get out. We hear this all the time. We hear about the roaring 20s. Personally, I don't think we're all about to put on tuxedos with, with tails, but do you buy another pair of sweatpants immediately? Probably not. I mean, that, that's a fair thing to say. But the athleisure genie is not going back in the bottle, right? The comfort genie. Nike is no longer just competing against Under Armour. They're competing against anyone who sells apparel because that's now where we're going. So I think that there's going to be this nature of, okay, if you haven't, if you made a huge bet on fashion for spring 2020, you probably have already absorbed the fact that you're not getting all your, you're taking a big cut. And you either put it away if you had the wherewithal, right? Big companies like Ralph and Gap and PBH called out that they were going to actually pack away product, not unlike an off-pricer, 
we're going to start seeing that now, but I bet they've also been trickling out the product as we've gone forward. So I think it's going to be like, I generally don't like using broad brushstrokes because I think each company has their own story. And I think this is very much a similar situation. Very long-winded answer. No, no, it's it's lovely. And I don't mean to make a broad brushstroke here, but this is something we're seeing in broad strokes. It's a movement. Nike uh, is one of them. Nordstrom is doing this on the retailer side. This is a movement away from wholesale models towards more direct-to-consumer uh, channels. And my question to you is, is this a year of experimentation? Uh, or actually, not even a year, but do we see more experimentation moving forward uh, as some of these brands move away from wholesale models and open up some of their own maybe smaller concept stores? Yeah, uh, it's a great way to frame it. I think that I don't know what year it started, so I'm not going to pretend, but maybe I will and just say, you know what? I think 2013 was the year where, where experimentation started. No, I'm just kidding. Re retail, I think, has been on a constant state of evolution, right? Going back to, to bazaars, going back to whatever form of how you, the, the goal of retail is to take someone else's product, physical, tangible, or just intellectual IP, take that product, curate it, and get it into the right hand of the consumer. So I think that's been a constant state of evolution since the beginning of time. People create things, people buy things, and you need to match them up. So whether that was the department store in the last 50 years or whether that was flash sale sites or subscription boxes, right? It's all doing the same thing. It's trying to curate someone else's product. By the way, whether that's a streaming service, same thing. It's trying to take someone else's product, even if it's IP. So I think that, yes, I think that we are seeing an acceleration to use the most used word of the pandemic, within the notion of experimentation, imagination, creativity, however we want to frame it. Um, but I don't think it's new. I think that that's where we were going. I think what, what's new, so to take your question, maybe tilt it slightly, I think what it allowed companies to do was actually do what they wanted to, was allow, was allow them to take that creativity out of their boardroom and actually apply it to the P&L. And that's a gift, right? That's when we talked about that silver lining, big public companies can't pivot. Startups can pivot. And by the way, startups pivot when they fail. So pivoting is, is viewed as this really good thing, but it's more a signal of failure. Big companies can't come out and say, I failed. It just doesn't work. And I think therefore big companies inevitably or historically actually say, I'm going to try harder, right? And they stress and they put band-aids on something instead of ripping the band-aid off and starting from scratch. The pandemic brought revenues down to zero. The pandemic brought expenses down to zero. And I say that hyperbolically, but what I mean is we were in a period where people weren't buying inventory, as your audience knows too well. They were not paying rent. They more often than not were furloughing employees, right? Essentially what happened at the beginning of the pandemic was big, big, big companies watch their revenues go to zero and also watch their expenses become optional. Well, what's a company with no revenues and no expenses? It's a startup, right? So all of a sudden startups and, and established companies were on the same playing field. And I think what that means is all of a sudden large companies were allowed to pivot. And we've looked at, and you and I have talked about um, offline, this notion of kind of certain companies that have been able to do that really well. And I think Victoria's Secret, I think Under Armour, I think you're looking at two huge brands that sold a lot of product and didn't make any money, realized that doesn't make sense. We sell cloth. And I think they were able to get creative. They were able to apply something other than simply closing stores as a fix. And that, I think, is what's exciting. And yeah, I don't think that ends. I think that that just people see the merits and people keep going. All right. So, Simeon, let's let's discuss a little bit of this evolution, because this is one of the big points that's going on. Retail is and always in constant evolution. One of these big things we've seen is fulfillment methods. Again, this didn't start with the pandemic, but it's been to use that most used word in the pandemic accelerated uh, by the pandemic. That's using BOPIS or curbside pickup uh, ship from store. I want to talk about what presents the most utility to customers, because it, when yeah, I look at right? That acronym. It's funny which acronyms we decide to use. 
Ship from store never really made it. It's hard. Oh yeah, I know it, it didn't make the SFS. It should though. Uh, and we've got we've got acronyms for everything. But what do you, what do you think presents the most utility for customers? Because when I look at uh, when I look at curbside pickup and Bopus, it seems to be especially for grocery and for household essentials the most uh, the highest utility for customers. You can it, the the Walmart and Target run is already in our routine. It cuts that time down by ninety percent for no additional cost. Delivery seems to have in addition to additional cost, uh, also having the the problem of, of choosing delivery times and scheduling delivery. There's a lot of of hidden cost in there. What do you think presents most utility? You know, it's kind of cool. I know we both use the word accelerant. I think there, there's certain instances where everything was accelerated, but there's also certain instances where we're being retrained backwards. And, and I mentioned this idea earlier about the consumer's pricing power has got as deleveraged, right? So the consumer had all the hand, right? To go, to go kind of Seinfeld in here. Um, the consumer had owned all the control until this year when the retailer took some back. I think as part of that, and, and, and I'm going to get so much backlash on this, and it's fine. I get it all the time. I think that our expectations as consumers for what we are entitled to shifted away or, or moderated when it comes to delivery times as well. So I think that as consumers, we were trained to say, you want something, pay up because it will disappear. But also think about your tolerance for delivery. Pre-pandemic, we were going from five days to two days to one day to an hour. All of a sudden now people are hoarding because they're worried they're not going to have things, right? You buy a book and you plan ahead a week ahead. You still read books to, to kind of anticipate because you just don't know, right? You're, you're kind of getting comfortable with this. And, and obviously, and this is where the backlash comes from, and I'll agree, obviously companies are still of the mindset that they need to get faster, better, right? I mean, give the consumer everything they possibly want. But I think there is this notion, if we think about it, and take a step back and kind of just look at what's been happening, where people have been retrained to understand that there is a cost of doing things. And there's an element where you want a product really badly. If it's not going to be there, you're going to pay up for it. And you're going to wait a few days for it. So with that as my preface, um, I will now kind of pretend like we didn't say any of that and, and acknowledge that, yes, right? I think every company is trying to also at the same time, the companies that, that need to are trying to figure out how do they become more convenient for the consumer. And it feels like Bopus curbside. It feels like these are price of entry, right? I, I was having this conversation about someone about ESG recently, and this is obviously a different idea, but I feel like sustainability is a price of entry now. Like people building their companies around it doesn't work. It's you have to be a really good company with ESG. I feel like to be, you have to be a really good company with a really good product with a fully customer centric supply chain as well. So I think that ultimately it's not going to be, it's only an either or if you have a customer that doesn't drive to pick something up on the curve, right? But at the end of the day, I think you're either a company where the customer is going to come to you and you're in control, or you're a company that you need to drive heavy volume and you need to make sure you're giving them everything they possibly want. And the reality is nothing is flat, as black and white as I just described. So everyone falls somewhere in between. So do you think that the answer is like a, a multi-speed supply chain uh, from retailers where you offer same-day delivery or you offer uh, delivery from shipped or whatever gig courier is going to do it, but you, in whatever creative ways you can do, try to find ways to incentivize people to take the most profitable, most efficient method for the, the shipper themselves? Yeah, I think so. I think, that, I think that's well put. And I think that the point you just brought up of having third parties is critical, right? You're going to figure out which companies want to do this on their own and which companies variableize it out. And I think that there's certain elements here where people generally think you variableize, you, you outsource something that you're not really good at. I actually think you outsource something if you think you can't scale it better, right? If you can't get margin on the incremental sale. 
So at the end of the day, I think that's where we will see. But yeah, I think that, that the notion of multi-everything is going to be the answer, whether it's multi-channel, multi-speed, multi-process, multi-flip. Like it's just, you do thing, you do something one way, you're going to be a very small company. You might be really niche and might, might be really successful in that one way, but you're just not going to be that big. Let's go back to the, uh, the the development that hasn't got its acronym yet, Ship from Store. Uh, and we've seen some crazy outlier uh, scenarios of this with Target supplying 95% of its online orders from store, either through delivery or pickup from store. D do you think that that, that model is sustainable uh, post-pandemic? Does it make as much sense shipping from store at that type of levels um, post-pandemic? Yeah, I love how you frame that question because it's two separate questions. Is it sustainable? Absolutely. Does it make as much sense? Well, it totally depends on store traffic. So I think that, again, the way the reason I love how you framed it is, do I optimize my store to be a mini fulfillment, right? Do I optimize for a pseudo dark store format or do I use it in case, right, if there's overflow? And I think that that's probably the end. We don't know the answer to that yet. And there's certain companies that are just going to say, I've got plenty of traffic. I'm in great locations. I don't need to utilize the space. It's much more efficiently used to have people come in. And then there's certain ones that are going to say, listen, I've got the space. I'm not renegotiating my rent. I'm not shrinking my store box. I may as well. So I think that it's going to work both ways too. I think the way I generally think about these things are, and I apologize because this will probably be a good blanket answer for a lot of questions. I think that anyone who, this is a topic where anyone who ignores it, ignores it at their peril, but it doesn't mean that everyone should embrace it. So everyone needs to think about it. Everyone needs to decide about it, but they then have to actually decide if it makes sense. And I think it's a really good parallel to e-com because I think there's plenty of companies, off-pricers are among the best, the best businesses in all of retail right now, and they have no e-com. And I think they win because they have no e-com, not in spite of it, which is a separate conversation, which we can have if you want. But the point is anyone who ignored e-com entirely watched e-com pass them by and they did not, they were not equipped for it. Companies that watched e-com and made a conscious decision to figure out where they wanted to play in that scenario is a different story. I'm really glad you brought that up because this is something I wrote about a few months ago, but it's just the idea of the, the differences between American uh, e-commerce and, and Chinese e-commerce or Asian e-commerce is American e-commerce is solely built around uh, the search engine, the Google engine bar, the Amazon search bar. Our idea is all about knowing what we want and going and search for a product where Pinduoduo and other uh, successful e-commerce companies in China have been able to, you know, implement a browsing-based online e-commerce um, strategy. And in doing so, they've been able to figure out that people are willing to take longer wait times on delivery if they get the lowest cost and they're getting something uh, at a discount. So uh, when does that happen in the U.S.? Do we ever, who cracks the nut? I mean, is anybody pushing towards a, a better browsing, a better treasure hunt browsing sort of uh, e-commerce um, uh, development? If you figure it out, you struck gold. So, so don't you change, go, go kind of uh, copyright that. But uh, no, no, I think, um, I think you're absolutely right, right? I think the biggest issue, if you think about the largest marketplace in the world, right? If we, kind of, if we think about the large ones, um, you've got a very big player on the West Coast that efficiently moves units. And you've got a very big player on the east side of the globe that actually builds out luxury homes online for brands. Right. So if you think about like the difference of where does a luxury brand want to sync up, you see a lot of companies on one side and you see none on another. And it's just this notion of at the end of the day, the more staple you are, the less you care about brand equity, the more you care about moving units, the more discretionary you are, the more your brand image, your brand elevation, your control matters. That's important. And I think that that's going to dictate kind of which where the where the 
client base or kind of where the interest base lies is, are you a want shop or are you a need based shop? So within that framework though, so you ask questions of Stitch Fix is talking about, right? You have a company here that's suggesting they can use data to create a scrollable feed that will essentially make the perfect Andrew outfit, always. Every time you scroll through it, it's gonna say, this is what Andrew, based on fit, style, color, preference, everything you want, you know that you just click that box and you're getting everything you want and, and it, 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 you then start scrolling through it. So it's this notion of trying to turn online shopping from, right, kind of embrace the discovery, embrace the experiential, try to neutralize the benefits of being in store. Do I think they'll ever fully be neutralized? Absolutely not. But our company's working to try and figure out how best to make you feel like you're in store even when you're not? Yeah, absolutely. Is that, but I, I guess I missed my, my big question, is the treasure hunt that TJ Maxx, Ross, uh, that these companies, that it is their calling card in store, is it replicatable online or rep, replicable uh, online? So you're hitting a topic that I love, another back, I, I, backlash is fun, I guess. Um, no one likes this treasure hunt. Pirates don't like hunting treasure. Pirates <laughs> like, getting, like finding treasure. Yeah. They like getting treasure. Pi yeah. The hunt is what you have to do to get it. And I applaud Off Price because Off Price has convinced us with such an amazing marketing campaign that we like hunting treasure. Let's talk about what's happening here. What's happening here is the business, and I love the Off Pricers, the, the Off Price business convinced shoppers to be their employees, right? Walk into, a, walk into an Off Price retailer and you are pick, pack, ship, fulfillment. You are the fulfillment, right? The customer is going to... Racks are rolled out the same way a pallet is in a DC. Obviously, I'm, I'm again being hyperbolic, but but you know what I mean. And they're it's not a great service. It's not a great. You're you're sorting through it, and you're trying to find essentially your pick, pack, and shipping. So it's this. I, I love it. I love it so much because we use this pirate the, the the treasure hunt as this notion of something to aspire to, and it inspires the need to grab something with high impulse. No, it when, yeah when you're searching when you've got your shovel. You're hoping to find a nugget and you find a nugget, you grab it, right? Because you don't know if there's going to be another one, but you don't go home and say, I had a great treasure hunt. It's, I found a great piece of treasure. So when I think about doing that online, listen, that that's, there is an element of shopping is fun, right? People do like shopping. So I think that's the question. I think that the off price component here is the treasure hunt exists because inventory is sparse. The treasure hunt exists because you can't simply click on something and say, I want all Michael Kors or all Nike product you have. If you could, by the way, there probably would be bots that buy the stuff off price and then resell it. So I think that there's an element here where that part in and of itself is probably very hard to do online. And I know that there are companies that are trying and that do it, um, but that doesn't mean you can't recreate some notion of a treasure hunt. Doesn't mean you can't create, listen, all the flash sales sites were all about trying to create an impulse driven purchase and you get something special, jump on it. So impulse and experience and discovery, I think, is different than treasure hunt because of scarce inventory and, and not full size runs. Uh, I'm going to have to tell my girlfriend, Courtney, that uh, you told her that she's an employee of TJ Maxx and Costco because that's what she does to do. Uh, that is very they funny. employees very well. Yeah, that's right. It's a good point. I mean, that, that is they, they pick, pack and ship uh, everything in the stores for them. That's a, it's a beautiful point. Um, I want to go back to wholesale to DTC. And again, to be clear, it's not a negative. I think it's I think it's brilliant, and I think the consumers are very much for it because what do they get for that? What's the price, right? So you say they're employees. What what's the payment they're getting? They're not getting a payroll. They're getting a very cheap price, right? So they're willing. It's a social contract that everyone is agreeing to. It's acknowledging that I'm going to get the best possible price 
the payment, what the service I'm going to offer you is you're not going to have to outfit your store in a way that a higher end store would have to do to make me want to shop there. Yeah, it's definitely not a negative. She loves both stores, goes to them weekly. Uh, I do want to jump back. Last question before I let you go, uh, or, or two two points. I'll ask you one question and then get, get an outro. So um, we, <clears throat> back to wholesale to, de- to direct to consumer, we saw Nordstrom, as I mentioned earlier, a retailer actually more v- move, moving towards more concession uh, model away from wholesale. Do you think that's something we see more of uh, from retailers? And then uh, as a follow-up, just to put a bow on the conversation, what are you most excited for to to look out for over the course of the next, uh, what are we, nine months or eight months into the end of 2021 in the retail supply chain uh, segment? It's like a glass half full, glass of the word. Eight months into the end of 2021 as opposed to being three months into, I like it, I like it. Um, so first question, uh, yes, I think department stores, I, I think any box with a lot of room is trying to figure out how to optimize the room and the choices are to shrink or to sublet, right, essentially. So I think that that's, that's probably a fair thing to expect go forward across the board, right? Anyone, anyone's trying to, retail will be repurposed. That's a fact. Figuring out what that repurpose is, is gonna be company specific. In terms of what I'm excited for, I'm really excited to want, the, the inventory, like I said, is, is the most interesting thing to me because what I really wanna see is who has the wherewithal, who has the kind of, the, who can look, who is strong enough to take what 2020 gave them, plenty of bad, but some really, important good and allow that to matter, right? Who's able to take the learnings and not succumb, not fall back into this constant rat race? I just, I think we have been, retail as a group has been on this downward facing hamster wheel, slightly downward facing. So you've been running around in circles, but unfortunately every run is taking you a little bit further down. And I feel like 2020 at least just propped us up. So now we're level. So don't, recognize you you started it for me my, my mantra for for the past eight months has been sell less charge more make more as long as we can remember that as long as it, listen it, it comes from a lot of a lot of people like me demanding growth 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 every quarter so I, I get it but if we can say the pandemic shifted and by the way this is i'm using this in my personal life too but it just gave you this moment to pause and reevaluate what it is what are the decisions you've been making what's the direction you've been going in Figure out what you've been doing because you're on a hamster wheel versus what you actually want to go towards. And the companies that can take these learnings and actually have really refashioned their businesses are going to find that they put themselves on a drastically different multi-year story. The companies that enjoyed one holiday worth of lower promotions but are about to jump right back into the fire, they're not going to be any better than they were last year. Simeon, I think that's a good way to put an end to our conversation. I do have to say that I think a few of our listeners are going to be hoping for the retailers to revert back to their old ways of overordering so that we get more freight. Not that we need it right now. We've got plenty of freight going on. But again, thank you so much for your time. So many great analogies and similes uh, to begin with, but uh, just incredible insights throughout our conversation here. And I'm sure I'll be seeing more of you shortly. Everyone, thank you so much for tuning in today. This has been episode eight of the Point of Sale show, the retail supply chain show, where we break down great retailers, the supply chains that move them, and the data they use to make decisions. You can find our show streaming live at 1.30 Eastern on Wednesdays on FreightWaves TV or live on FreightWaves LinkedIn or FreightWaves Facebook. You can also find them on demand wherever you listen to podcasts on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can subscribe uh, at Point of Sale at anywhere you listen to podcasts or also subscribe to FreightCast, which is our all-in-one platform that holds all of the FreightWaves audio, uh, audio broadcasts. So tune into FreightCast for that. Also tune in 
to the FreightWaves point of sale newsletter. You can subscribe to that at freightwaves.com slash POS. I write a twice weekly newsletter on the retail supply chain, ever evolving and always changing. Please join me there and join me again next week because we'll be doing it again then. See you then.